I playfully, but somewhat seriously, argue that we shouldn't call it trial and error. We should call Mm. it trial and failure. Because error, again, implies that there was a way to know in advance the, the right answer, but we just missed it for whatever reason. Whereas trial and failure says, I'm going to try something in new territory. I don't know that it will work. I hope it will. But I'm fully aware of the possibility that it won't because this is new territory. And if it doesn't work, if it results in a failure rather than a success, that's data. It's not, you know, devastating that it happened. It's data. It's valuable data Hmm. that helps us discover what does work. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile. And we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. Those people who are out there trying. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional, or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real-world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. The Supporting Champions podcast is sponsored by Athlete Now, a new venture I'm involved in. Now, Athlete Now is a new platform that's revolutionizing the connection between athletes and sports performance practitioners. We know that in the world of sports, the pursuit of peak performance is a constant journey and it can often feel like a bit of a solo mission. And nowadays, with the high tech landscape of wearables, nutrition, mental training, Navigating your path to excellence might seem overwhelming. An athlete now aims to demystify this process, offering you straightforward guidance. So athlete now or the athletenow.com, what's it all about? Well, if you're an athlete, then you know that the margin between good and great is influenced often by the expertise that's guiding you. But where can you find that expertise? Athlete Now offers the answer, granting you access to a curated selection of sports science, medicine and coaching professionals. And they're not just qualified, but they're rigorously vetted so that you can search by experience, specialism, location or accreditation to suit your needs. And Athlete Now is emerging as the solution for athletes seeking to push their limits and get the support they need. For the professional practitioners listening in, Athlete Now solves the age-old question, how do you stand out in a sea of talent? And the platform not only showcases your skills, but connects you directly with those who need them most. So whether you're a nutritionist whose strategies are fueling the champions, or a psychologist whose techniques are helping athletes to cope, strive and perform, 
Athlete Now is your stage. For athletes, the platform is free. And for practitioners, you can sign up half price for this first year. Only £10 for the foundation tier, which will allow you to get your profile started. Or upgrade for the professional tier, where you can get advanced features such as the job boards, community access and practice guides. And that's just for £50 per year. So Athlete Now is more than just a directory. It's a community committed to excellence ensuring athletes and sports professionals are perfectly paired to help support each other's ambitions together. So whether you're striving to compete or building a career, helping others do so, Athlete Now is really where it's at. So take a look at theathletenow.com. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, who is one of the most respected figures in management thinking in the whole world. Now, we dive into her new book entitled The Right Kind of Wrong, in which she explores the concept of failure as a crucial learning tool. And our discussion covers the importance of understanding different types of failures, the different contexts and consequences that might come from different types of errors, failures, and violations of rules and principles. And this, of course, is all underpinned by the role of psychological safety, of which Amy pioneered the concept in team environments and relating that to team performance. Amy brings such valuable insights into this area. It feels like I've opened a door reading her book and talking to her that there's a new skill set there waiting for me. Just simply the idea of being able to categorise different contexts of failures into basic, complex and intelligent failures was a real game changer for me. I share with her some sporting experiences and Amy was good enough to to help me try and understand those in different ways and different scenarios so that I might be better placed to learn from different types of failures in the future. We delve into a whole bunch of different topics, risk management in sports, innovation, the concept of pre-mortems for proactively addressing potential problems. And we wrap up the discussion talking about leadership and the acceptance of imperfection and vulnerability and the significance of creating a learning environment within teams. The conversation starts quite naturally, actually. I was asking Amy to to make a recording on her computer or a phone so that I didn't waste her time. And that is a process that I have in place recording the podcast that has come from a failure. So I'm double, triple checking now. That is my way. Good idea. I mean, that's the, you want to prevent the basic failures. The ba- there we go. We're straight into it, aren't we? We're straight into the, <laughs> the basic failures of a, a routine and a process and learning right. from that yeah. awkward moment of realizing I'd lost it. And Despite being in familiar territory. So the two that I've had go down have been one, one where someone said, hey, no problem. Let's re-record. And the other one didn't respond so well. So so I took I took the second one that amplified my learning about the processes, that rumination of, oh no, I've wasted that person's time. And we're sort of straight into that sort of topic, aren't we? About that fear and that you talked about in in this this new book of yours, which I, I must du- duly introduce. Um Right kind of wrong. 
What a title, Amy. What inspired you to write it? This is a topic I have been pondering and studying for 30 years. And truthfully, what inspired me to write it was um, a a colleague who said, you must write this book. And I said, but I've written so many articles already. Do I really need to write a book? And there's so many books out there already. And she insisted that the book she wanted to read about failure had not been written. And she talked me into it. But but more more um, substantively, um, I I do think that there was value to putting it all together. It, and you know, an article can maybe go deep into what's an intelligent failure. Why should you have more of them? But to really lay out the full landscape um, was a uh, was I think a useful exercise. It's um, the the title of the book to me felt intriguing because I was able to sort of point to cases, particularly in my field of sport performance, where I don't think there is a sense of the right kind of wrong. I think wrong is wrong. And it's quite binary in that sense, that if there is a failure or a loss on the scoreboard, that dictates everything. That's sort of common common parlance of on a Monday yeah. after the, the weekend results, it's a lot easier when we win. Um, yes. And, it, and it's the prevailing atmosphere and vibe in the team, but it also meant that everything went, went well, not all the, all the time. But I, I have a growing sense that there's, there's an increasing number of people, there's a movement of people who, who want to do things well want to develop, want to progress. And that feels like understanding different types of error, failures, and so on uh, could be helpful for them. I completely agree. And it's funny that you um, say that about sports, because I think of sports and sport performance as one of the great areas where failure is accepted. I mean, not liked. Nobody nobody likes to fail. You want to win win the game, win the match, not lose it. But you understand that it's simply not realistic to say we're going to win every match or we're going to get a gold uh, in in every competition. It's just not it's not the nature you've got you, your competitors are too good for that. That wouldn't be um wouldn't even be healthy thinking. It's healthy to be ambitious. It's healthy to work as hard as you possibly can. But you accept the reality that you won't win every time. And to me, that's one of the great gifts of sport is it helps you build those failure muscles to to learn viscerally that even when we don't win, we bounce back. We're, we're, you know, we're still here. We're still able. We're, we're, we're still, we're still champions. Uh, we may not have won that particular, uh, but we're, we're, we're still incredibly um, good and proficient at our, our chosen sport. So um, disappointing as it is to not win, I would think of it as fairly well accepted as, as part of what you signed up for. Well, Perhaps this gets into the different types or the decoding that I think you offer in the book, that 
perhaps just thinking uh, sport helps you this, sport doesn't help you with this. Lessons such as in the English Premier League, the average tenure of a manager is 0.8 years. Um, and that doesn't feel like, well, no, no sorry, uh, no, no, you, you interpret that for me. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, to me, that sounds much too short. Um, the very moment where experience is starting to um, build and be useful, you're out. Um, so that, I, honestly, from an operations management perspective, which is part of my home turf, it sounds wasteful. Yes, waste, wasteful and probably quite expensive too. Yes, um, well, that's waste is expensive. Mm, oh, waste well, is not something you want to pay for. You want to pay for value, not for waste. We, we're getting into it. Perhaps before I just jump to the 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 depth of understanding that you share in the in the book. Um, I was I was delighted to hear that vulnerability at the start of the book. Are you sharing some of those? your own fears as an early careers doctoral student, uh, which I'm sure many students could relate to. Um, but the example that stood out that you gave as, uh, I suppose, a little bit of exposure to yourself was your own, I, I'm going to an inverted commas, failure to get selected for the high school basketball team. <laughs> could you share this example? And I'm intrigued to hear how that affected yes. you at the time and how that has informed your work over yeah. the years. Well, I, I will say that I was never under the illusion that I was some kind of special talent in athletics. Um, and in fact, I, I very much care about sport. And, and growing up, I w was pretty competitive with a friend of mine in, in sailing, right? So, so I did engage in competitive athletics, but sailing really was a very cognitive uh, game. Um, and and uh, I continue to do it today, which shows you mm. uh, cognitive. But but um, in high school, of course, you know, the the cool kids are doing something. And and certainly many of my friends, we didn't, the high school I went to didn't have a lot of sports. It was in New York City. But we had, we had volleyball in the fall. We had basketball in the winter um, and mostly gymnastics in the spring, but there were other things as well. And so that was really the only team I could try out for. And I liked, and to this day, I still like basketball, but I wasn't very good at it. And what, but what was particularly emotionally difficult about not getting selected was that the coach put up the list of those who mm. were accepted and the list of those who were not. And the list of those who were not had only one name on it, mine. So that has an extra bit of embarrassment and and shame associated with it. Um, so that's that's what led to I think the emotional resonance. I mean, maybe that's why it still lives in my memory, rather than being one of those things in high school that's long forgotten. Well. I'm intrigued to know what sparked your interest in psychology. I wonder whether that was a moment. <laughs> that Possibly. Was you know, I set out in, in, uh, as an undergraduate, I studied engineering and did only problem sets, you know, no, no, very little writing um, of papers. So it took me a while to discover my, my real calling, I have to say, but maybe you're right. Maybe that did spark an interest. Mm. And so, 
As I mentioned, I'm keen that psychological safety is a factor uh, in teams and environments in sport. It becomes part of the skill set and the the awareness of the tools that might be available to improve those performances, but also how it feels. I wonder if you could just, for those who are unfamiliar with it, we've had um, Tom Geraghty on previously talking oh. about uh, psychological safety, but for those who are unfamiliar, could you define that yeah. for me? Psychological safety describes a climate where you believe you can speak up readily with ideas, questions, concerns, and yes, even failures. Right? So it's it's permission for candor. It's a sense of felt permission for candor. It is not uh, an environment of comfort or or, or ease or you know um, just hundred um, percent acceptance of everything. You know, tolerance of everything. In, in fact, it's it was conceptualized early on by me as a learning environment, right? one where we can do the uncomfortable things we have to do to get better. And I think that's true uh, for for a sports team as well as for a work team, where if you want to be better tomorrow than you are today, you're going to have to do some uncomfortable things. And not not every team at work is sort of set up for that. And that's that that describes the environment where it does seem a bit more plausible. And and you make the case that better teams don't necessarily make more or less mistakes, but they are more able to freely discuss them in, in that yes. sense. And and you know, in that in that early study I did of hospital medication errors and um, and adverse events related to human error and team error. Um, I had to conclude from that study that we didn't know the actual error rate because the reporting bias was too strong or too likely. So that I don't actually know. I can't say from that study anyway that better teams don't make fewer errors. In fact, I would still argue that better teams make fewer errors. And we had data on that from some other contexts. But in that particular context, there's no way to know what the actual error rates were. All we know is the reported error rates. And once that was a kind of blinding flash of the obvious, you know, once I realized that the data we had were not error data handed down from God, they were error data collected through human processes and 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 humans are pretty good at sort of covering up their imperfections when they want to is there a bias for that is there an evolutionary rationale <laughs> as to why we want to avoid blame or shame or yes rather than dealing with the facts of the matter or reflecting objectively I think the evolutionary argument is that we very much have evolved to fear rejection from the tribe because right. that could quite literally lead to death through exposure uh, or starvation or both. And and so we are we have wiring and socialization that, that lead us to be very concerned with what do other people think of us. And we want them to like us, accept us, want to keep us around rather than the, than, than the opposite. And then we're under the delusion that um, the best way to do that is to not have imperfections. Well, 
of course, we all have imperfections, and everybody knows that. And sometimes, uh, you know, they don't know that you know, which is um, not as attractive a trait as you might think. What I found intriguing about uh, well, several sections, but what, what was really helpful for me or has got my thinking rolling in a different direction is the differentiation between errors, failures, and violations. And that feels as though that's quite important to understand the potential consequences or the the ramifications of what happened. Absolutely. In fact, to go back to something you said early on in reflecting on the title, Right Kind of Wrong, you said that I I never thought about wrong kind of wrong. Well, a violation would clearly, in my mind, be wrong kind of wrong. So a violation is a deliberate act. I know the rule, but I'm going to break it um, because of some gain to myself or maybe to my team. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's generally not something we want to want to encourage. Whereas a mistake is an unintended deviation from a known process or practice. And 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 it can't be on purpose, right? If it's on purpose, then then it's a violation. And um, it's hard, you know, it's, it's, it's very rare that we would want mistakes, right? Every now and then a mistake turns into a happy accident, you know, a discovery, a penicillin, um, or an oyster sauce, as I write about mm-hmm. in the book. But m- more often than not, our, our best bet is to try to set things up so that people don't make um, mistakes. They're, they're theoretically and often practically preventable. Failure is a larger territory and includes both of those categories. It includes it includes mistakes that have consequences. Some mistakes, of course, we make mistakes, but nothing nothing happens as a result, and that's no big deal. We move on. But many mistakes lead to failures, smaller and larger failures. And so, a failure is simply an un, undesired result or outcome, uh, and. And again, some failures are caused by violations. Some are caused by mistakes. Um, but many, thankfully, are caused by thoughtful experiments that nonetheless didn't achieve the result we had hoped. Right? We, we had good reason to believe that something new might work, but we were wrong. Now, there was a, there was a sentence in, in the book about trial and error and i i, yes. I loved it because uh, it's got a it's got a the, the book's been uh, oh i'd love to see that all <laughs> the little you can't see the ti- you can't even see the titles yeah but and then you read about post-it notes in 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 uh <laughs> yes. in chapter seven <laughs> um there was a so, so what i was talking about trial and error trial and error trial and, and, error, and yeah. so the the idea was that actually you need to know what error looks like or we know you need to know what right looks like and that was intriguing in itself because that then could differentiate between error and failure failure potentially could be that there's a growing sense this is not going so well as opposed to that was the wrong medication for the patient there was there was a wrong dosage that is is much more measurable that feels that that failure feels like an area where for a lot of people the there are complex decisions, judgments to be made. Feels like that is the domain that a lot of business executives or sports 
coaches will be dealing with. Yes. And, you know, I, I playfully, but somewhat seriously, argue that we shouldn't call it trial and error. We should call mm. it trial and failure. Because right. error, again, implies that there was a way to know in advance the the right answer, but we just missed it for whatever reason. Whereas trial and failure says, I'm going to try something in new territory. I don't know that it will work. I hope it will. But I'm fully aware of the possibility that it won't because this is new territory. And if it doesn't work, if it results in a failure rather than a success, that's data. It's not, you know, devastating that it happened. It's data. It's valuable data Hmm. that helps us discover what does work. And that's that, I mean, that's just so interesting, that data aspect of of information. And it's one it's certainly one thing that I've noticed that sports do do well. They debrief. Um, yeah. How did it go? What went well? What yes. didn't go so well? What will we do differently tomorrow? Performance environments that are are really looking to facilitate development for tomorrow are extracting the intelligence from yesterday and that experiential aspect. That's really interesting. And that is the other great thing about sports, I think. And the, the other reason why it's such good experience and such good background for people because they can find themselves getting in the habit of reflecting on yesterday's experience or today's experience and figuring out what it offers for tomorrow. And when that becomes a um, a habit or routine that you regularly engage in, that's just a powerful life skill as well. You mentioned the study that that uh, talks about the happiness of bronze medalists, and that obviously spoke to me in a bit more um, resonance. So, the, the, so for those people listening, uh, Olympic bronze medalists versus silver medalists reported greater happiness, even though perhaps you'd expect them, because they're slightly higher on the podium, the silver medalists might be happier, but it would appear that that's not necessarily the case because they just missed out on the gold. Right. right. They've, the reframe there is I've missed out versus actually I've gained or I didn't get four. Right. And it's very spontaneous and it makes sense. I mean, I think it's once you hear about it, it sort of intuitively makes sense right? that the, the silver medalists are prone to saying, oh, you know, I just missed. They're framing their victory relative to the gold, which they had really wanted. Whereas the bronze medalists are prone to naturally framing their victory as compared to, I could have not meddled at all. I, I could have so, you know, but for seconds or points, I would have not been on that podium at all. And I am grateful to be there. I go home with a medal. I've got a a theory for you, Amy. I wonder if you could just spend the next 25 years or so trying to see if this is anything, and there's anything in this at all. Having worked as a scientist supporting athletes and coaches, I think it is so much easier to work with a bronze medalist coach. Huh. So the bronze medalist has has gone into coaching and they don't know it all. You try and talk to an Olympic gold medalist who's gone into coaching, it's very difficult to get an idea across the line because it didn't it didn't necessarily Right. They didn't necessarily do it themselves. So 
That's fascinating. If very anecdotal. However, yeah. I can I can give you citations if I if I need to of Olympic gold medalists who will just bounce the idea back to say didn't work for me. I didn't try it. I didn't use that. Therefore, and it and it's quite difficult to get the Olympic gold medalist to sit down after the event to do a thorough, nice, reflective practice piece of what went well, what didn't go so well. Well, I've got a gold medal, so I'm very happy. I don't really need to have this conversation. Thank you very much. I'm off to a open a supermarket. Um, whereas it, it's obviously, if it hasn't gone well, sometimes that is, I can think of a number of examples of it hasn't gone well the year before the Olympics. And it's somewhat of a relief because you think, right, we're going to be open, open to different ideas and debriefing thoroughly. And we are going to have that candor and that safety to explore and tell it like it is, because we're working on the back foot, looking to pursue that goal. I, I love that. And, and actually, it, um, it's, it sparks two thoughts. Um, and, and one is that just the general idea is that, in, and research show, has support for this, that it's harder to learn from success than from failure. Because success is not very diagnostic, right? You you succeeded. You got a gold medal. But it's not immediately obvious. Did you get that gold medal because you outworked everybody? Did you get it because, you know, you had a particularly good day? Did you get it because the other guys kind of didn't do, for whatever reason, their best that day, right? It's There's any number of factors that could have explained that success. And you are not well positioned to differentiate among them. There's no there's no differential data um, to to help you, and and so you're likely then to fall into the trap of of uh, believing that that success was accounted for by all the things you think it was accounted for. You know, my good looks, whatever, right? So so that's um, that's that's a little bit of a trap. And then they over are at risk for over attributing you know that success to expertise in how others would succeed, right? Who are not them, who are different from them. Whereas failure almost necessarily gives you clues along the way, right? Well, ooh, you know, that we didn't do that quite as well as we should have. And so we can we can hone in on it and get useful information that 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 helps us going forward. In business, there's a a saying you sometimes hear, which is that nothing fails like success which sounds paradoxical until you realize, no, what that means is once you're a market leader, once you've got you know great revenues, great profits, you are at risk for being reluctant to change things. And yet the world keeps changing. So you're at risk for this beautiful formula that explained your success yesterday, but it's not going to guarantee your success tomorrow. That idea of of changing whilst you're winning in that sense yeah, it's for it's a hard, difficult right? business case to get the troops rallied behind an idea of we're going to change this up, even though there is we smashed our targets. Yep. everything's going well today. You know, if it ain't broke, uh, don't fix it. Well, not actually the right advice, right? If if it ain't broke, keep in mind the world is changing, and. It's our job to change at least as fast as the world is changing. Mm. Stay ahead of it. <clears throat> and and that that casts my memory back to a conversation on the podcast previously about goals. 
and I'm interested to to get your interpretation of uh, around the concept of failure versus goals. Mm. Um, I had Christian Swan on talking about how smart goals are perhaps one of the least effective forms, particularly the A and the R part, the achievable and realistic part of smart goals doesn't set the challenge enough. It doesn't stretch the ambition enough. It doesn't necessarily act as a, a powerful motivator. But I, I'm intrigued to get your thoughts there, because if you do set those goals out of your reach, right. the chances of failure, and therefore, if you're, if you're a CEO or if you're a leader or a, a coach, potentially the, there's going to be greater failure felt in the team. Right, which can be emotionally challenging uh, to cope with. So I think the the way to thread that needle is to accept that goals are motivating, right? And stretch goals are motivating, but treat them not as future facts, but rather as hypotheses. Like this is what we mm. believe we might be able to do if we really work hard. And bunch of things actually go our way right here's our here's our ambition let's talk about it as that ambition but it's a hypothesis you know not a future reality so that we we can and this may just sound like words but what we're trying to do is not let us fall prey to the error of thinking that not hitting a stretch goal was in fact a failure Rather, I mean, doing, you know, really lousy, that's a failure. But if, if we don't achieve something that in our wildest dreams we thought might be possible, that's not a failure, right? That's just a stepping stone on the way. If we get, if we get close, you know, or if we get further than we've ever been before, we have achieved. Hmm. And, and if I could just ask you to, to share your, the, the the body of the of the book around this this idea of of context, um, mm. consistent variable and novel, and the respective types of failure, basic, complex, and intelligent failure. Yeah, I would love you to just expand upon that, and sure. if from the point of view specifically of being able to help people decode. What might mm. I be experiencing at different times? Um, because I would imagine that most people will experience different versions of those in fast-moving environments like sport. Yeah, so it's um, you know it's such a simple, and I apologize for it. But it's such a, a simple classification system. But in my experience, especially studying organizations and 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 executives um, in mostly business, but other other sectors as well. Um, it's not an, in, it's not, um, assessing the context is not something that people naturally do or, or, or systematically do in a, in a way that's helpful to them. So the, the, um, the, the consistent contexts are those contexts where we can be reasonably sure that the, the same things will happen today as yesterday. And, 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 you know, they're, they're the automotive assembly lines or, you know, the the household chores that you do every day that just are routine, you know, routine, predictable, understandable. We know exactly how to get the result we want. 
Now, variable contexts are well understood. They're familiar and they are the ones that are prone to smaller or larger differences happening. You know, the, the, if you're in a hospital emergency room, you know exactly what you're supposed to do for a whole variety of complaints that might show up, but you can't really predict exactly who's coming in today and what kinds of conditions you'll need to treat today. So they're well understood, but prone to variability. And then the novel contexts are those where we really don't, we really haven't been here before. We really don't know how to get the result we want, such as a scientific laboratory where you're trying to um, identify some new compound that may help in the treatment of a particular cancer, right? And it's, you have goals, you have hypotheses, but you don't have the knowledge. You're trying to get that knowledge. Now, those three contexts kind of correlate with the three failure types. Basic failures are single cause failures. Again, you make a mistake, you get you get a failure in familiar territory. Now, you can make a basic failure in all three contexts, but they're most characteristic of the consistent context. Uh, and or you know, where a small deviation might result in a vehicle defect, for for example. Uh, in a variable context, we're prone to complex failures. Those, those, despite our good, mature knowledge about how to get the results we want, we're prone to unexpected factors, maybe some bad luck, maybe some, a little set of factors that never happened together in exactly the same way before. We have to be on the lookout for those unfortunate sort of confluences of, of, of events that might lead to a breakdown in the system. Characteristically, in novel contexts, we have intelligent failures. Those well-intentioned, on you know, on-purpose experiments that nonetheless don't produce the result we had hoped. You know, our hypothesis was wrong. Um, it's a failure, but it's an intelligent failure. It got us new knowledge we didn't have, uh, and and so, and again, in a in a laboratory setting or a innovation setting. Intelligent failures are your bread and butter. You you want more of them, not fewer of them. Hmm. Uh, but it, of course, it's possible to have a basic failure. It's possible to have a complex failure. So these are sort of correlations, not complete deterministic um, matchings. But the the um, the real point of having that skill to remind yourself of what kind of context is this is it helps you figure out what kinds of risks should I be taking. You know, if you're in a novel context. There's no way to just look up the answer somewhere or ask an expert, you know, what will work here? You must go through trial and failure in order to make progress. The, so thank you for unpacking that. The, I've, I've, I've scrolled all over this page because I was just trying to digest the information and interpret it in my world. And I, and this, this is my version. So Amy, please can you coach me on this as to whether that I've got the point or I'm, I'm wildly off because that's, that's a possibility consistent. I felt that was like racing hundred meters. Um, there's, there's, there's few variables that, that, that are going on. Obviously there's a, maybe a different crowd or there might be some slight, you know, new talent that turns yeah, but you up. Can tune it out. Yeah. yeah. You, you need yeah. to do that thing every time. And, right. and, and it almost you, doesn't matter what everyone else is doing, right? You're doing, you have to do your thing as best you possibly can. 
yet. So variable, I've got as, first of all, I put down set pieces, but just hearing you talking, I wonder if that's like in team sports, where it is, there's a a degree of predictability to it. Things can change and you have to be very responsive. And one small error can lead to, as you describe in the book, one small thing can have a cascading effect downstream that causes a goal, a perturbation mm. in movement, uh, losing concentration or something. I did have team sports at the the novel or the complex yeah. uh, or the intelligence failure, but I wasn't quite sure. Yeah. Um, listening to you now, I wonder whether that novel environment was um, very complex sports or for my experience, being part of a team that hosted the Olympics in 2012, which yes. is which is just new territory here. We, yes. We're going to have to we're going to have to learn as we go and be very open in the description of that and share it around widely. I think this is really fun. I, I think the um, I think you're right, and 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 the categories will bleed a little bit in in this domain. But I I think. Any team sport, you know, football, you name it, is going to be um, definitionally variable territory because you you have all of the things that could happen among you and also the things that happen between you and the other players on the other team that are, um, despite the rules not changing, you know, the rules of the game, the, the you know, maybe there'll be some weather stuff, but there's, there are necessarily you know, unexpected deviations, Mm. you know, from an ideal scenario. And yet as we, you know, as we drift off to the right here toward, toward novel, I think exactly as you just said, there could be situations like we've really never, we've never played in this park before, or we've never hosted the Olympics and been on the playing field before that, that make it even more novel. So truly novel. So you just cross, you cross over the boundary from, from variable to novel. Then the other novel context that occurs to me in sport would be um, those moments, many of them in practice rather than in competition, where we try a move we've never tried before. Or a, g- a gymnast does a you know a, a, a triple when they've only done a double before, um, or you you try a you try something that's actually never even been done in the world b- before, and you're often doing those behind closed doors. Not you certainly wouldn't be doing them for the first time in in competition, uh, but those those are the domains where you are trying to deliberately extend what's possible for the individual or the team. Right. Okay. That 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 speaks loudly to me so the two examples i'd give you one was in 2005 working with a particular athlete that we identified seven years later at the olympics they got a good chance of of being a real talent and a hopeful for medals and we started to hatch a plan to improve her performance and but it was high risk so high risk high reward and so therefore the pitch was we should we should be careful with this. We should try it out in training. We should we should warm the idea up and then try it in a low key competition. 
then try it at World Championships. And the first time I think she tried the specific warm-up strategy was three years prior to the Olympics. So wow. it was, it was, wasn't the gradient. Yeah. No, that sounds like a, um, a very thoughtful innovation strategy. And that would be exactly the kinds of practices that, that I would recommend for going into new territory. You do it, and in fact, that relates to the context chapter, because you're doing it, you're deliberately managing the context. You're not saying, oh, let's go try this in the Olympics tomorrow. You're, you're saying, let's gradually build up both the 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 skills and the stakes mm. as, as we go so that by the time it's really matters it's the highest stakes contest then it's no longer new territory mm. and so that was one of the characteristics of failure that's intelligent trying to make those those changes as small as possible exactly uh, so potentially that you're 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 just staying safe. And I think that high risk, high reward area is often a place that in sport people don't want to go to because of the high risk aspects of it. Right. But if you're taking an innovative approach to it that's small changes over time, yeah, that really that 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 section was was superb. And and when I talk about risk, or when we talk about risk, I, I identify three kind of domains of risk and and probably all three apply in sports to a certain extent, but you know, one is just human safety and harm. Right? You don't want to right. get injured by doing something too large, too fast or too different, too fast. Um, there's, there's, you know, financial and that applies in a variety of ways, I'm sure. And then finally there's reputational and, and reputation really matters uh, in, in sport. And does that change the openness to, creating these psychological safe environments uh, that sense of if it's high risk or that there's high threat yeah. that does that does that change the the tone yes i think what you're trying to do when it's high risk um or high threat is minimize both right you you, you want to stop and have a you know an experimental strategy that's more thoughtful that that doesn't require you to take larger risks than is wise. So you're, you know, you're deliberately managing risk in the way that you described before, where you're sort of, you're building it up slowly. So it's not as risky. Hmm. That, that strikes uh, a chord with the discussion I've had with special services, um, that, that in planning uh, an operation, they are very free. It is very open. It has to be candid. It has to be ex explore, explorative, but then they back the idea because it's right. then about risk management. That feels sort of similar to that example there. Yeah, it's very similar, and it's it's um, you know Gary Klein, uh, the psychologist, talks about the the usefulness of a pre mortem, which that sounds mm. similar to, which is if we're about to launch something consequential, you know, be, make a senior hire a coach, you know, one of those ones is only going to be around for 0.8 years. Um, instead of waiting till later when we then all learn, oh yeah, that didn't work out so well. Why don't we just imagine before we even do it, let's imagine the future very viscerally that where this was a total fiasco. And then we say to the group, okay, what did we miss? And now you're asking them to engage their creative juices. 
Right? Whereas before, if they were supposed to speak up with a negative comment, they were at risk of being seen as negative. But now we say, look, give it to me, right? How how creative, how analytical, how smart are you really? And then people are pretty willing to um, to to dive in and find the potential flaws, not necessarily to kill the plan, but to at least be smart in advance about those things we could have known and did know in advance. Does that link to the the second section of the of the book, whether it's pre-mortem, in the moment, or afterwards, around the mm. three different domains that you're proposing around self-awareness, situational awareness, system awareness? Is that a similar sort of approach of thinking of, in different ways about the the problem or the experience? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's a really nice connection. I had not made that myself, but it's it's spot on because. Let's say, you know, we, we decide to engage in a pre-mortem. Um, there's really three domains of factors that might contribute to that outcome. And one is the self-awareness part, which is, you know, checking for your blind spots. You know, what, what are the ways in which, well, that person looks like the right kind of manager to me. You know, I've seen managers like that before. And so I'm biased, you know, I'm likely to be biased in favor of imagining this person has all these attributes that they don't, for example, right? But being aware of your own biases, being aware of your own tendencies, which we all have to jump to conclusions rather quickly on thin evidence and just pause, slow down, think it through, be a little more thoughtful um, about that. And system awareness we've talked about already, but you know what what kind of risk are we really taking on here? You know, small, medium or high. And what kind of context is this? And let's just make sure we've taken that into account. And then finally system awareness has to do with stepping back to see how the relationships between elements of our plan might inadvertently uh, create failures that we hadn't thought of before, but could have thought of if we gave ourselves the opportunity. And I'm. This might be a tough question. I don't. I. I would imagine you've been asked hundreds of questions about this, this book. But I. I read that final section, and I wondered, what is the most? What is the most powerful predominant force? that accelerates or decelerates psychological safe environments. Yeah, that's interesting. So the you know the the last bit of the book in you know in a little bit of an attempt to pull it all together but also make it personal. It's called Thriving as a Fallible Human Being. And what I'm really trying to do there is say let's face it each and every one of us is a fallible human being. That's just a fact, you know. We, and and the sooner we kind of accept that and are willing to joyfully go through our lives and our work anyway, you know, rather get get over the idea that we're supposed to be perfect, then all sorts of you know good good things open up and. And that is part and parcel of creating psychologically safe environment because I'm a fallible human being among working with, teaming up with other fallible human beings. Once we all get on the same page about that, then you know we can we can relax in such a way that we can actually learn together. We can stretch, we can get it right, we can get it wrong, but we're there kind of supporting each other as fallible but 
seriously ambitious human beings trying to make a difference. That feels like it's a, a call to action for leaders, people who are holding responsibility to act as role models by diffusion or vicarious learning that, that people are able to say, oh, they're, they're not perfect. They're not necessarily willing to show this machismo and ego. They actually want to share that they can't, they're struggling or they, they don't know the answer, but that then makes yeah. me feel as though I can be a bit more open. How would that, how would that relate to people who are under perhaps a different type of leadership that, that is a little bit more like um, most people. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, I think that sometimes when I work with businesses and teams and they, and sometimes the leader saying the team need to sort this out, the team is saying that the leader needs to sort this out and they're not necessarily coming together, but giving the team an age, some agency to create some sort of movement. How would you suggest that they try and encourage that? Well, first of all, I, I just want to underline the idea that leaders are role models, right? And if there's a, you know, there are behaviors that are vital for your team members to engage in, for the team to succeed, you had better be willing to model those behaviors because otherwise they're far less likely to happen. Um, when, if you're in a team and those leadership behaviors or the optimal leadership isn't present, um, I sometimes think the best advice there is don't let a problem above you become a problem below you or next to you. Just mm. do your part, right? It, the, the extent to which you can show up as a learner and a good team member, um, that's all you can do, right? Is, you know, ultimately the thing that you have control over, and this is even questionable, is your own behavior. And, and so just start there and and with an eye on the goal. I think many of the things that people need to do, whether in sport or in the workplace, um, are inherently hard and effortful and occasionally put us at risk of being embarrassed and, you know, getting things wrong. And to be willing to do all that, which isn't fun, you've got to be motivated by a, a goal that you care about you know, or maybe a purpose that you care about. So I, I often think we 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 um we lose the opportunity to get that essential motivation to do hard things by continually coming back to the shared goal or the shared purpose. Hmm. Well that's um that's a great note to to finish on. I, I was really struck by the the book as well as the sentence, there's a key sentence in there. Doesn't psychological, psychologically safe environments don't necessarily mean it's fun or comfortable. It still means you've got to turn up and deliver excellence. And I think you referred to hitting deadlines. And, and I think, I don't know, my, my version of psychologically safe uh, as a term that's been maybe warped in different ways. We marginal gains is this idea of of trying to get all these tiny little things. It's become warped as an idea in sports performance and business. Um, and and this feels this book feels as though this makes it very tangible for me. It I've, it feels like on the first read through, I've opened a door that I didn't know was there. Wow! And and in, and I need a second read <laughs> so wow. to try and develop the skill oh. set and. Uh, and for that, I'm I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to read it, but also to talk to you today, Amy. Thank you.
I am so grateful. This was just a truly engaging conversation for me and, and a privilege to be a part of it. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now, we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Music.